0: This segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at Two Under, Men's Performance Briefs, the unofficial underwear of the PGA Tour. Worn by PGA Tour players like Ricky Fowler, David Toms, Jerry Kelly, William McGirt, Jason Kokrak, and Matt Everett, to name just a few. Your buddies are going to think you're a stud if they're even seeing you in your underwear, and that's a whole nother story. And your girlfriend and or wife is going to love the side effects, a visually enhanced profile. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management. It separates a man's most valuable assets from bodily contact to reduce unwanted skin-on-skin contact, providing less chafing, more control, and an altogether more luxurious feel. Start every round, Two Under, by wearing the coolest performance briefs on the market and use coupon code ONTHET20 to save 20% off your order at TwoUnder.com. And that's the number two, UNDR.com. All right, now joining me here on Next on the Tee is Top 100 Instructor Jonathan Yarwood. Let me give you some background on Jonathan. Ten years as an elite golf coach at the David Ledbetter Golf Academy. Spent a year as a director of instruction at the Ritz-Carlton in Sarasota, Florida, followed by three years as a director of instruction at the Concession Golf Club, designed by our friend Tony Jacklin and Jack Nicklaus as well. He was then recruited to head up a new golf initiative at Loughborough University to create a state-of-the-art biomechanics service. He founded his own golf academy back in 2007. He is now the director of golf at the International Junior Golf Academy in Bluffton, South Carolina. And like I mentioned at the top of the show, he coached Michael Campbell to the 2005 U.S. Open Championship. But he's also coached two U.S. Amateur winners, two U.S. Girls winners, three AJGA Players of the Year, plus winners on the PGA, LPGA, European, Challenge, Asian, and Australia Asian Tours as well as several amateur victories and other ranked players as well. And I'm very excited. He is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Chris, thanks very much. Uh, That's a lengthy introduction. Uh, I appreciate being on your show. Uh, Looking forward to talking to you. Same here. So, Jonathan, anytime I have a first-time guest join me, I always like to understand when you first started playing the game of golf, who first put a golf club in your hands, and, and when the point in time was that you really started to fall in love with the game? Well, my track was a little bit different to normal, really. I'm not from a golfing family. No one in my family uh, play
1: golf. I'm from quite a, a socioeconomically humble background, if you, if I want to put it politely. Um, and so we used to go and caddy at the local golf course. And uh, you know, one of us, I shouldn't really say, but one of us stole one of the clubs out of one of the bags one day. And, Uh, We used to play on the local soccer fields and we'd dig a hole in either end with a shovel and and 20 of us would share this club and the balls we found on the way around and and just whack it from one end of the soccer field to the other, really. And, uh, you know, I fell in love with it, really. I I, I wanted to understand how to propel it. There's people who could hit it further than me and I wanted to hit it further than them. And all I owned actually at the time was a little bike. And so the guy who stole the club, I said, look, I'll give you my bike um, and I'll I'll, I'll have that club off you so I can use it on my own. and, And he did um he he gave me the club he gave me the club and uh uh he said the deal was a club one pound and seven balls he still owes me the one pound and seven balls unfortunately because i only (laughs) got the club but uh uh, we uh i ended up sneaking on the golf course at night you know the usual story i couldn't believe the expanse and the beauty of the golf course i could still feel and smell it now and the, the fact i could whack my ball anywhere and I had to keep my eye out for the ranger so he didn't kick me off and stuff like that. And then the local course just started, you know, giving free lessons and stuff. So uh, as I got later in my career now, I'm, I'm a, I've always been a big bastion of the underdog and the first tee program and all that sort of stuff to introduce, you know, people from, you know, not not the, the right side of the tracks really into the game, because I think we need to make it more attractive to everybody. And uh, the elitist image of it is still a little bit of a restrictor to, to, to growth in my view. So. I always champion the cause of the people, uh, you know, who
0: uh, who wouldn't normally play it because that's how I started, really. So when did it, uh, you know, come to you that you know what what I want to do, you know, as a career and for the rest of my life is is teach the game to to folks, whether it's through the you know first tee or just in general. How did you finally decide this is what you wanted to do? Well, uh, you know, there's a lot of
1: fate involved with everything that you do, isn't there? Um you know I, I I wanted to play like everyone starts to to want to play and and kind of in my area, there was just the you know they were just coming out with using video cameras and teaching and it was very embryonic at that stage. It was like the most talented ones got through but um you know nowadays I can create performance by design, but you know i really I just got interested in what made it all tick really, and no one seemed to know so you know I got exposed to a very good coach early on in my career called Mal Tong who was Coaching a really good amateur player called Helen Dobson, who cleaned up on the amateur circuit one year. She won every major amateur uh, trophy you could win. Um, So I was exposed to good coaching and and, and, uh, et cetera early on. And, you know, I got to the point where I thought, you know, I'm really more interested in how it all works and helping people rather than myself. I could see myself only being relatively average, really, after a while. I was just a skinny, little wiry kid uh, with very little guidance. Um, so, you know, I kind of gravitate in that direction. I'm from a family of, of school teachers, actually. Um, so, you know, there was a synergy there, definitely. Um, and I just fell in love with the game. I, you know, when I look back, I've met, worked with and met some of my heroes now. I've been on planes with, with, with Nick Faldo, I've helped Seve and all those I'm from that era, the European golden era of Seve, Woosnam, faldo, et cetera. And we used to, I used to sit up at, geez three or four in the morning watching the Masters every year and be late for school the next day because it was so amazing and, and so amazing to see America and what they did with golf, et cetera, which really piqued my interest. Little did I know I'd end up here. I've been here for 23 years and as a U.S. citizen now, actually, very proudly. Um, so, you know, it, it just kind of evolved, really, and uh, I just got really interested in it, and I was on a wave of, of how, you know, people f- trying to find out how the game worked, really, and I got involved with David Ledbetter, who you mentioned, he was at the cutting edge at the time, and uh, a lot of our, our ideas and what I'd figured out myself really matched with him. So he took me under his wing, and you know, I really spent a lot of time with him. I, we don't teach one one swing; I think it's a misconception, and he doesn't teach just one swing either. But he, he's a genius guy with people, and he's a very creative person. And I've kind of inherited that a little bit, and I'll always be grateful for, to him for that.
0: So a lot to a lot to digest there. And I tell you what. One of the things that intrigues so many of us and you know, that love the game is you talk about how the game worked. I, I'm not sure that anybody has ever understood how the game worked better than Sevi. You you had an opportunity to yeah. spend some yeah. time with Seve. Talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it', it just an artist, isn't he? You know, he's, he's enigmatic.
1: He's one of those people who's just, you know, magnetic, really. He, he had so much charisma, as a lot of players did in that era. I think we've lost a little bit of that in the modern era as as everything gets more sanitized, more scientific. Um, But, you know, he's just a pure artist. You know, he didn't have a great golf swing. And you look at it technically, if I look at it in my evolving eyes now, he definitely didn't have a great golf swing. So he used to hit it all over the map, really. Um, But his will to win was second to none. And, you know, that's one thing I've found with all the great players I've worked with over the years. Their grit and their will to win is a common denominator with them all. They all swing it different. They all do it in different ways. They've all got strengths and weaknesses. But their common denominator is their absolute will to win. And he's got an absolute will to win, as Fowder has, as all the great players and all the great champions have. So, um, yeah, it, 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 uh, it's been an enormous privilege, really. You know, when you're a boy and you've got pictures of these guys on your on your uh, bedroom wall, and then all of a sudden you're meeting them and you're flying around in planes with them, it's like sometimes you've got to pinch yourself.
0: <laughs> So, in, in, in getting the opportunity to spend time with them, sort of one-on-one, if you will, and, it, and in airplanes, and sort of in the quiet moments away from the golf course, what was it like getting just to sort of pick their brains and listen to them? Listen to them share their stories. What are some of the things you learned from spending those quiet times with them?
1: Well, you just realize that I think the number one thing for me is you realize they're human. I think you know you see this um, media image of a player. You see Tiger Woods. You see Rory. You see, Brooks. You don't realise they're just normal guys. You know, they're 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 made of flesh and blood like we are. That they, you know, they're they're exposed to unbelievable pressure, and unbelievable scrutiny, um, and they're under enormous pressure. These guys operate under pressure like none of us know. You know, that if you have a bad radio show or I have a bad uh, you know thing on the lesson T tomorrow, no one's going to know about it really. Um, but these guys, it's it's in front of three million people, so. You know, you've got to give them massive respect for how they deal with pressure and deal with expectation, and how they drive themselves forward. You know, they're never satisfied. They win a win a major, they want to win another one. They win the British Open, they want to win the Masters. You know, they're just special people, I think, and, and driven people. That's probably the most, the, the biggest thing that stands out. As I say, they all do it in different ways. There's, there's no one way to do it, but the, the, the overriding thing is the human side of it to me their psychology of it and how they deal with life and how they deal with where they are, their status, etc. I think most people would would kind of crawl under a rock. I would. You know, if I stand on the the first tier Riviera like Tiger Woods did the other day, 20,000 people watching me, I think I'd probably shank it in the bushes. But, you know, they just take it <laughs> for granted and nail it down the middle and, and away you go. So. You, you, I think you take it all for granted, you know, the pressure they're under, the scrutiny they're under, especially in the modern era. You know, the, they were under a lot of pressure in those days, but nowadays it's even more with social media and, you know, the instant gratification generation and the amount of criticism they can come across, which is grossly unfair in my view, playing the toughest sport in the world. Uh, you've got to give them a little bit of slack. You know, someone like Jordan Speed, for example, who's lost a bit of form, you know, give the guy some slack and understand that, you know, golf's cyclical goes round in, in circles. So you play well for a while, you play average, then you play poorly, then you rebuild and then you start playing well again. It's cyclical. And people've got to understand that you're not going to play well every week. You know, the guys on the tour that I've dealt with play thirty weeks a year, they probably play well four or five weeks a year really. So, you know, understand that that that's part of the game. But uh yeah, in general, just, just uh you know amazing amazing people but quite vulnerable people as well when you're with them in private, I think the overriding thing.
0: And very human. And, Jonathan, like I say, you got to uh, work with Michael Campbell. He, he won the 2005 U.S. Open. Talk about the work that you did with Michael and the th- stuff you continue to work on over the years. And, and what was it like being a part of a major championship victory like that? Well, it's a, obviously a, a kind of victory out of nowhere to some extent, but it wasn't really. If you look at
1: his history, he's, he's won 15 times around the world. He's made, you know, X million dollars in prize money. he has been a very... Con- very consistent, very, very high quality player. Um, but it, it, again, it was an enormous privilege to be involved in something like that. Um, you know, he was the first person to, well, one of the few people, sorry, to qualify in the UK in the new Europe, in the new international qualifying tournament. He, he made a six foot putt on the last. No one knows this or remembers it. He made a six foot putt on the last at Walton Heath to get into the US Open. He got into the US Open as a qualifier and won it. Um, I, I think it was two or three people have done that. It's very rare. Um, and you know well I met him at the tournament. Here's a little story about it. I met him at the tournament and, uh, the, a few days before and he he came off a decent start in Europe, but he said, Oh, my putting's so bad. My putting's so bad. And he, historically, he's been a great cutter. And so he came with a broom handle putter. And I said, What are you doing? What are you doing? You've never used one of those in your life. So he's in panic mode. So I said, Okay, let's, I used to do a lot of ball performance work because I spent a bit of time with Scotty Cameron and I learned about what's called the ball performance, so I filmed the ball, the ball dynamic. So I said to Michael, okay, we'll film the ball dynamics with your broom putter, and then we'll film the ball dynamics with your normal putter, and then we'll make an informed choice on that. I try and use opinion as little as possible. Um, and it turns out the ball performance dynamics were worse with his broom handle than they were with his, his uh, normal stroke. So all I did was just rebuilt his normal stroke into his normal blueprint and then added a really good routine into it. And then, you know, talked a lot the whole week about, you know, really low expectations, going through the process, not getting carried away with, you know, all the hoopla and all the media interest. I, I, I'd say things, ironically, weird things to him, like, everyone thinks you're going to choke. No one's going to notice you. This was on Saturday night. No one will notice you if you fall away. Don't worry about it. There's no pressure on you whatsoever. There's just 18 T's, 18 greens. You get on with it. Let's see what happens. And he kind of took that attitude with him and, you know, all credit to him. You know, he stared down Tiger in his prime, which, uh, not many people have done. And, uh, you know, he, he won it by, I think, three shots in the end. Um, so all credit to him. And, uh, it was a remarkable period in his life and my life. And, you know, some people can deal with it. Some people can't. If you look at major championship winners, you know, there's a, a category of, people who win one and kind of fade away because they can't kind of handle the pressure to some extent, the expectations. And there's a school where they win a major and they go on and win three or four. Well, Michael's obviously in the former. Um, And even though at the end of that year, actually, he went and won the biggest check in golf, $2 million at uh, at Wentworth, actually. Um, But, you know, that was the zenith of his career. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, listen, I'm just a bit part player in the back. Um, but I'm very happy to be a part of it. I can, I can show you
0: my contribution. Um, and it's a real privilege and a real honor to be, to be part of that, actually. So, Jonathan, a couple of things there. You, you mentioned building a really good routine. Is that something that is individual to Michael and all the different players that you work with? Or is there a kind of string that ties? all of that together that all of us could learn a little bit about developing a good routine, especially on the putting group. Well, I
1: think, yeah, I think in putting, you know, it's relatively standardized. You know, I try and create some individualization, but with him at that particular time, and and something I've actually used today with someone today, actually, it's very easy to, to, in a routine, make it not a routine, but make it a ritual. But a ritual has got no emotion in it. It's got no engagement in it, whereas a routine has got full engagement. Uh, so what I created for him was uh, what we called at the time Superman eyes. I don't know if you remember Superman where he's got lasers coming out of his eyes. Um, that was his kind of visual. It's like, okay, what I want you to do, if the putt, if your practice, if your putt takes 1.2 seconds to get to the hole, you, in your practice routine, you are going to walk your eyes down in 1.2 seconds and absorb every piece of information along uh, from your ball to the hole. And then you're going to walk them back in what we called at the time, real time. So you're trying to really simulate what is going to happen when you actually hit that putt. So he walks his eyes back and forth, burns his eyes along the line like Superman, and then steps over to the putt, burns his eyes in real time again, and then makes the putt. And if you try that, if you really put some thought, some emotion, you slow the stare down, as it were, you really burn your eyes along the line like there's lasers coming out. You'd be
0: surprised. You're so much more engaged. You see so much more, and I'll guarantee you make more putts. Jonathan, I want to talk about the modern game. You talked about ball dynamics a few moments ago. So let's talk about the modern game and, and distance games from technology, whether that's the golf clubs themselves or for the golf ball perspective. Where do you land in that, so, that whole debate? Well, i tell you, you know, there's so much
1: talk about, you know, the golf balls, this, the golf balls, that. No question. The golf ball is part of the equation. There's no question. It is not just the golf ball. I, I deal with elite uh, performance athletes every day. I've got a swing catalyst 3D force plate studio. So we look at ground reaction forces. That's part of it. Trackman is a massive part of it and very overlooked. I can look at the ballistics of someone's ball, the club. Um, I can do anything now. I can, I, Basically, we can look inside the engine of the car as it's going down the road, see the compression, see how, how the engine is efficient or not, stuff I could not see and could not quantify 10 or 15 years ago. Then you've got nutrition. Then you've got sports science. Then you've got the gym. Then you've got golf club fitting. Then you've got golf club shafts, Then you've got heads. You've got technology. It's not just the ball. We've just created a more modern sport. Like Every sport has evolved into a more modern sport. Tennis has evolved into modern sport. American football is evolved into modern sport. Baseball is evolved into modern sport. They use trap man in baseball now. I don't know if you guys know that. You know that. You know modern technology has crept into every sport. It's just a, just how modern life is. I think it's it's really exciting. It's great. I love the fact that people hit it miles. I love the the ballistic, aggressive approach of modern golf. We have lost a little bit along the way, I think, um, and something possibly might have to kind of rein it in a little bit at the professional level because. It doesn't really impact the amateur level, but definitely maybe the professional level. But it's a, it's a multitude of things. It's multi layered. I said to you, you know, you, the synopsis is, you know, in the past, when I first started, just the inverted commas, talented people made it. Well, nowadays, I can create performance by design. So I, can, I know the code, and we know the code as instructors, not just me, many instructors. By using technology, we know the code. So you can create a code and crack the code for each player, and therefore create an army of great players, which is what we have. If you look around the world, the difference between a guy winning on the PGA Tour and a guy winning on a a small tour somewhere in Argentina is very small. There's such a fine line there because so many more people have got access to this great information. They know what they're doing. They're in the gym. They're doing TPI. They're on TrackMan. They're on 3D force plates you know as i say it, it, it there's no the guesswork is taken out i often say when i'm coaching that i don't teach by opinion i used to teach by opinion in the past because all i had was a video camera which is basically a 2d image or something it's like the, you know like the x-ray really and now i've got the mri so now i'm not i don't have an opinion now all i've all i'm using is facts factual data and then i'm going to make an intervention with you and then i'll change the data and prove you know, that the intervention makes sense. So, you know, all those things added up create this, almost this monster. To some extent, that's kind of out of control a little bit. No one really knows how to cage it. Um, there's a lot of things involved, involved in caging that thing. I mean, there's the golf club manufacturers, there's the ball manufacturers, etc. But I think the consensus across the board is that something, you know, really has to be done about it because you can't just keep building bigger and bigger courses and bigger real estate. You know, you have to be realistic with it. So um, it'll be interesting to see the solutions, the power that B, uh create. Um, but something definitely has to be done. And one of the things I would do, which I've talked to a few people at the higher level, is just make more intricate golf courses. You know, look at something like Royal Melbourne. You know, that brings the ball back, basically, because it's intelligent bunkering. It's rock hard. You've got to position your ball. It's an artistic golf course. You know, that reins the field back and makes makes distance less important so i think the architects as well have got quite a, a big say in the future of the game in my view but uh, it's definitely not just one thing it's definitely not the ball i know that's the hot topic but it's it's a multitude of things
0: jonathan one more before i let you go and uh like i mentioned in your intro you had an opportunity to work at the concession golf club tony jacklin has been a wonderful guest with me over the years and that course was designed by mr jacklin and jack nicholas in honor of their Ryder cup match i just Curious if you had an opportunity to spend time with, with either or both of them while while you were uh, director of golf there. Yeah, I met
1: uh, Mr. Nicholas briefly, but I spent quite a lot of time with Tony and his son, actually. I started coaching his son a little bit. And again, you know, talk about the seat of privilege. You know, I don't think there's a better golf course anywhere in the world than that place and a better ambiance. And, a, a, you know, the Cassidy people that own it are, are great people. And, you know, the whole facility is fantastic. I don't think there's anything better, really. Um, you know, it it was such a tough golf course, really. Uh, I remember Zinger went out there and shot, like, 89 first time he played because it was so tough. Wow. Uh, And, uh, you know, I I coached a guy who who shot 29 on the back nine, actually, uh, because he mastered how it was. It was so intricate and such a beautiful design golf course. But they've they've altered the greens marginally, I think, and it's it's very playable nowadays. And I'd say it's a beautiful place. And, you know, being a British person, you know, growing up with all these icons and heroes, and, and obviously Tony Jacklin's the trailblazer for the British golf. Uh, what he did in golf uh, really set the, 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 the opened the, the doors, really, for Faldo and all the other guys, which were my heroes. Tony's a massive hero of mine, and to spend time with him is amazing. I've been, you know, around his house and had Sunday roasts with him and Yorkshire puddings with him and Astrid and uh, helped his son out a little bit. And he actually made, uh, he, I don't know if you know this, but, in the in the summer in Florida, it gets so hot, you don't want to go and play. And he's, he's he's incredibly talented at a thing called marquetry, which is where you kind of layer different types of wood on each other and make like a, a painting almost out of wood. Um, it's quite remarkable. It's very intricate. And he's, it's incredible what he did. He presented me with a, a picture of myself, actually a portrait made in marquetry uh, of myself on my 40th birthday. And he, he did want to Ben wow. Hogan. Oh, it's remarkable stuff. I've I've got, I still got a treasure. He made a, a salt shaker for, and a, a pepper shaker for my daughters and engraved it on the bottom. And I let it really know who he was. I said, look, in a few years time, when you're older, you research who that guy is and you'll keep those for the rest of your life. And again, just part of the journey I've been on to meet these people and, and spend time with them is, is, is just a, a privilege and a blessing. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I just feel so privileged to, to, to have to have gone on that journey with, with everyone, and Mr. Jackman, uh, you know is just a legend to me.
0: Jonathan, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media?
1: Yeah, I do a ton of stuff on social media. I'm posting uh, videos every day uh, with no charge, um, just my name at jonathanyarwood.com. Uh, Jonathan Yarwood, sorry. Uh, my website is jonathanyarwood.com. Uh, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, Yalwood. Um You'll see loads of tips and, and, and you know, interact with people. And uh, you can get an online lesson on my website. And uh, you can see what I'm up to at the IJGA, where I'm currently director, www.ijga.com, and see how the modern kids are training. So, uh, yeah, it's all exciting.
0: Well, Jonathan, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come and be a part of the show. So many other things I wanted to get into with you tonight. I hope you'll come back and join me again soon because you're fantastic. I will. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Take care, Jonathan. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up soon. Thanks, man. That is Jonathan Yarwood, Y-A-R-W-O-O-D, and at Jonathan Yarwood on social media. Great stuff, folks. I'm telling you when you look at all of his lessons and his videos and the things that he has been uh, sort of witness to and throughout the course of golf history absolutely stunning and i uh, really hope we get the opportunity to catch up with him he is uh, he is a delight